Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends get together to talk about all things movies, or so we normally would. Uh, Sam is away getting settled in out California way, so we wish her the best in the move and in settling in. But in the meantime, uh, since we're not covering new material together as a group, we decided to take a trip down memory lane and have a look at some of our older episodes, uh, some of the Butter classics that we've gone through throughout the years. And uh, my selection for this week's recap episode, this uh this little butter classic would be 1996's Fargo, filmed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, one that we covered within our first year. So memories from this episode for me include us concluding our inaugural cold movies theme back in 2018, gushing about Norm and Marge's loving relationship, and how I hadn't yet presented a movie to the group that Sam hated. How times have changed. Uh, it was a lot of fun to talk about and a lot of fun to revisit. However, with time and distance and revisiting this movie several more times since, its position as my second favorite film has actually changed as my thoughts about it have uh, have changed a bit and uh, specifically my thoughts about the ending. So we hope you enjoy this trip down memory lane as we look back on the episode and be sure to stay tuned for my thoughts on the ending after. Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philadelphia get together and talk about movies, among other things. It's uh, rated the number one movie podcast in the world, according to my dad. Oh, did your dad really say that? Well, it's it's one of the few podcasts he listens to, as, as far as I know. He's getting on board with them, but... Thanks, um, Dad. But yeah, thanks, Dad. Just Aww. warmed my cold Thanks, Dave's dad. <laughs> Dave's dad. Could melt all the snow in Fargo, North Dakota. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which uh, actually, incidentally, uh, ties into what we're doing here today. We um, Shockingly. <laughs> we're wrapping out the uh, December into January uh, theme of cold movies. Um, with that being pretty open to interpretation as far as what we're bringing to the table. So um, the my choice uh, for the category was the uh, 1996 uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen film Fargo. I chose it uh, for pretty obvious reasons, I suppose, as we'll cover. Mm. Um, There's a lot of snow. <laughs> there is a lot of snow. It looked real. Was it real? Do you know? That, that's the most important question. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to that. <laughs> <laughs> this is a larger discussion. But just so you folks know, it's uh, it's an episode where uh, it's a bonus feature episode as we do each month. So we're breaking from format a little bit and we're all just talking about the movie where we've all just watched it together. Now, uh, Christine and I have seen the film before, but Sam, Tori and Connor, this is their first time viewing Fargo. True. How do you guys feel about the movie in general? I'm very happy I watched it. Oh, yeah, yeah. me too. Oh, yeah, that was good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, can I say that normally I get a little bit bored watching almost any movie, but I never did. And I've watched a lot of Coen Brothers movies, so I f this has always been one that's like kind of on a shame list for me. Like I should have definitely seen <laughs> yeah. this by now, so I'm very happy. I feel like a better person now. Yeah, somehow. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that the same pe that they they just made so many different types of movies. Mm -hmm. uh, like this is worlds away from No Country for Old Men. And oh, this I was love a, that movie. A fantastic movie. This was at a time, though, also when they described themselves as taking on movies that were exactly that, where they wanted to do something different with every film and not really strike so much of a, a, a chord and a consistency in terms of their subject matter, but in terms of their tone and exploring it. 
Although, would their next movie have been Big Lebowski? It was. If this was 96. Yeah. Oh, I feel like there's a lot of parallels, though. You have, like, mm-hmm. the classic Ransom, like, the kidnapping, <laughs> um, lots of random foibles and cars and, like, kidnappings going wrong and money and... And even just the casting. <laughs> and the... Ca- right, yeah. yeah. Well, that was one thing, too, that uh, I think... From what I understand, they had already written The Big Lebowski or something like that and were seeking financing for it at the time they were making Fargo. Um, so they cast Steve Buscemi intentionally as a loudmouth character because he plays Donnie in The Big Lebowski just and doesn't has next shut up. to no lines. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's kind of like an evening act, I guess, that they did. Well, no, but I feel like in The Big Lebowski, he also plays a character that's like just when he's speaking just is incessant <laughs> and just won't shut up. That's pretty true. Shut up, Donnie. <laughs> um, and then that, other, and then the other accomplice, Peter Stormare, makes an appearance. Mm-hmm. But what else has he been in? Um, well, he was in yeah in Big Lebowski. He was um, the Russian cosmonaut in uh, in Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. He pops up. Some yeah, he's someone I too. see a lot, I think, but like never actually like think of him, you know. Mostly, I think of him in this role when I think of uh, Peter Stormare, mm. uh, and and same with Steve Buscemi. Honestly, this is sort of the movie I usually associate with him. Uh, so the film stars uh, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare, as well as uh, Frances McDormand, who went on to win um, Best Actress uh, in the uh, '97 Oscars for the role. Um, she plays uh, Marge Gunderson. Well deserved. Mm-hmm. She was great. Yeah, it's really the heart of the film for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, yeah. She and Norm, their relationship, and uh, just um, her, her also just doing really like sound and uh, reliable police work. Yeah, she, she, she was really a fantastic detective. A great cop. Yeah, I would watch like a whole series of her solving different crimes. Can I just say, watching her character be so smart and intuitive while being so feminine in every way and also mm-hmm. being pregnant was like the best fucking thing. <laughs> I, the whole time I was like, yes, this is amazing. The pregnancy part was so interesting too because when we were watching it, I was like, this doesn't really seem like something that like the movie needed necessarily, but the fact that it is a part of it is just like adds like some interesting like tidbits and details to it. So I thought that was very cool. And it was a um, it was a uh, Frances McDormand was not pregnant at the time of filming. Mm-hmm. It was a uh, bird seed filled suit that she wore, mm-hmm. um, and she made it a point not to not to make any effort to walk as like as one imagines or casts a pregnant woman to walk she just tried to move mm-hmm. with the physical limitation of the existing uh prosthetic um <clears throat> as naturally as she could which makes it for which makes it i guess a more nuanced performance or a more believable performance maybe and yeah. also i feel like that kind of works with her character as like a policewoman who's like she's pregnant but she also has to like get stuff done that she would right. just try to be like i'm kind of forcing myself through all of this stuff um yeah. yeah there's that one moment where she's first examining a shoe print and then she bends down even closer and then her partner's like are you like what are you finding she's like no i'm just i, I feel like i'm about to throw up and then 2 seconds later she's like it's gone all right let's move on <laughs> like, the morning sickness yeah. uh-huh yeah but she also just seems like someone like in like incredibly kind because her partner brings her that coffee. She definitely doesn't drink it. She's probably like, I've experienced this before. It's nasty because she throws it before mm-hmm. they actually get into the car, mm-hmm. which was something so subtle, but like really I didn't appreciated. Even that. Yeah, yeah, like really 
like fully rounds mm. out the character. Yeah, because she seems like someone who's so genuine and so nice. And when I feel like on the surface you're introduced to her, you don't wouldn't necessarily assume she's also someone who's like very smart and very like good at her job and very observant and all of these things. And so then when that aspects of her character like kind of get introduced, you're like, oh whoa, like you're you're doing it all. You're being all of the things right now, which is kind yeah. of amazing. And and like to that point, like her total interactions with that Mike character, mm. the one yeah. who just like randomly shows like up Yana from her Gina. past. Yeah. Um, her like continuing to be on the phone, even though it's past 11 o'clock, <laughs> her actually meeting him when she goes into the city. And then also like that really strange interaction that they have, which mm. when they do meet at the Radisson for dinner, um, in my mind, I was like, oh, this is everything that women go through all the time, which is like, you're getting this really strange advance from like the sexual advance from a per- like from a, a, a and dude handled it so well especially yeah. for a movie like in like 1996 yeah or handled it well but also showed that like women always have to be apologetic mm-hmm. even when it's like an unwanted sexual advance from the other person because mm. she was like no that's a, that's all right that's all right uh, yeah when she when he goes to the other side and tries to kind of lean in she suggests that he go back to the other side and she says oh no just so i don't have to turn my neck mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. But, like, she was very quick to be like, no, this makes me uncomfortable, yeah, which inherently true, yeah. is something a lot of women probably Absolutely. would not do because we feel like we're not allowed to do that in mm-hmm. that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, on the other hand, we also have uh, Jerry, uh, Jerry Lundegaard, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, sort of almost uh, kind of the central, in a way, villain of the film. Um, he's played pretty expertly by William H. Macy, who was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the role. Mm. Um, didn't win it, but um, but ultimately uh, it did sort of like launch his career. This film launched the careers of a lot of the people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, when the film was nominated for Best Picture, Billy Crystal, who had hosted the Oscars for several years, strolled <laughs> out onto the stage and in his introductory monologue uh, turned to some of the indie filmmakers that were there in representation via like uh, the Coens and some other people and jokingly said, who are you people? Mm. Um, but it was sort of a big deal because it was uh, a really big year in the early 90s or mid 90s for uh, independent films really contesting with uh, with big budget films, mm. especially alongside films that came out on like the Miramax wave and so on, hmm. which we'll get back to. Yes. But <laughs> before we get to all that, uh, I would like to provide maybe just like a quick run through of uh, of the film and mm-hmm. maybe we can pr- uh, provide some insight into some of our favorite scenes. The film opens with a... Uh, a static, uh, just sort of bit of information. This is a true story, uh, the film suggests. Uh, the film is in no way based on, on a, uh, a true case. It's an amalgamation of, like, different stories that were kind of sewn together. Um, and the Coens just sort of um, just sort of put that in, in their description because they felt that the things that they had sewn together into this patchwork of, uh, like, established cases and criminality and just a, a study of, a thorough study of the place they were from, uh, Minnesota, the Midwest. Um, they felt it true enough that they could throw that in there, mm. I guess, is sort of their rationale. That's cool. And there was actually a, a because at one point in the film, as we'll get to, uh, some money is buried deeply in the snow in uh, Brainerd. And uh, there was a woman who was rumored to have gone there in the middle of dead of winter and tried to find this money and froze to death. Oh, wow. But we'll get back to that as well. Um, But the film uh, just opens with this sort of snowscape. We meet uh, Jerry Lundegaard as he meets Carl Showalter and Garrett Grimsford, 
which is um, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare, respectively. They're in a bar and they're discussing uh, a plot to kidnap his wife for his father-in-law's ransom to absolve his legal and financial woes. Um, I really love this scene as an opening scene because it, at one moment, really frames um, William H. Macy's character against um, against Buscemi and Stormare's character really well as far as what you can expect from these characters. Where when pressed uh, by Carl and Gare, uh, Jerry just sort of like stumbles and says, like, you know, it's not important why I need this money. We don't need to talk about that. Da, 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 da. So he's kind of just seemingly like very uninformed about how to handle this scenario or like is uh, doesn't really have all his ducks in a row and he's really out of his thought league. it through way out mm-hmm. of his league. But then on the other hand, it returns to Steve Buscemi's uh, immediate retort to that, which is what well, Jerry, you're asking us to go into this thing, but you won't um, you won't. Mm. And then he forgets what he's trying to say and just sort of shrugs. Ah, fuck it. Let's go look at that Sierra, <laughs> meaning the car. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're pretty ill-equipped for this as well, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of sets up a bungling ad- atmosphere right at the onset of the film, I think. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're both these sort of erratic figures that are like William H. Macy's character is is sort of sort of like sniveling shit, but... <laughs> It has this sort of veneer of this sort of like kind, just sort of Midwestern guy, but mm-hmm. really just a selfish a and garbage person. Garbage, bad guy, yeah. garbage a very bad person. guy. And Steve Buscemi is like just as erratic and just shitty, but kind of on the other. He's funny looking. Full tilt. With it. <laughs> he's, he's, he's kind he's, of funny he's looking. Just kind of funny looking. <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> circumcised. But, but yeah, just both elements of like chaos. Yeah. I think um, the other day, Dave, when we were talking about this movie, you were saying how Buscemi and um, what was the other guy's name? Stormare. How they're sort of like obvious evil and bad when like William H. Macy's this like scarier kind of like. In a way. I mean, Steve Buscemi is kind of a neutral evil. He's doing it, you know, for his own for his own gain. I think Stormare is more chaotic evil. Yes. Um, Because he's just sort of this character that's kind of lost in this silence. Um, and just kind of becomes a really imposing presence throughout the film. But he is sort of focused. Oh, absolutely. And he gets the job done when it, I mean. To, to some horrifying ends. But right, yeah. right. Where he sort of has this sort of single mindedness about carrying out certain functions a kind of will yeah but at the end does he even care about any of that that's because the thing. like who knows yeah like by the end of it it's just like utter chaos and you're like mm-hmm. he's just killing because he's killing you know mm-hmm. yeah. like yeah and then so we we get a little bit into uh what's going on with jerry at his at home we meet wade his father-in-law Gene, his wife, and Scotty, his son. Uh, there's a discussion between uh, Wade and Jerry about uh, developing some commercial space, which seems like one of the things that he's trying to do uh, to also make a, a lot of money to absolve his legal problems or whatever it is. Um, but it seems though Wade is pretty disinterested to the point that um, it establishes Wade's dislike of Jerry as he uh, points out uh, William H. Macy's character making this pitch, you know, uh, oh, this would really help out me, Gene, and Scotty. Mm. Uh, to which he, his cold response is, Gene and Scotty never have to worry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, damn. It's pretty blunt. Um, so Jerry himself is a, a works at a car dealership. It seems as though he's got some sort of almost Ponzi backing scheme going on mm-hmm. there where uh, he owes a lot of money on some vehicles that don't exist. Um, and he... Uh, 
he we learn also that he's been working with um one of the mechanics there, uh, Shep Proudfoot, um, in connecting him with Steve Buscemi and uh, Stormare um, in this plot to kidnap his wife. So at one point, he gets the call from Wade, uh, and it sounds like he's going to go for the land development deal, and as such, he needs to call off this hit. So he goes to speak to Shep, um, who points out that, like, well, he doesn't have an alternate number for them. And I love the scene in a way because William H. Macy just sort of slinks away and it's clearly like there's a serious problem, but he mm-hmm. just sort of like backs away in a pretty like sniffling and cowardly mm-hmm. fashion as he does with everything in the film, really. Yeah. I was just thinking about the the like kidnapping scene, the eventual mm-hmm. kidnapping scene, which is what And that comes up pretty much next, yeah. And and the wife's name is Jean. Jean. Mm-hmm. Jean. Something I thought was like really brilliant and I was like, hell yeah, is when Jean is like opening the window and makes yeah. him think that she actually went out, but really she was just in the, the shower the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And runs away with the shower curtain over. I, I mean like that, it, you know. <laughs> no, like you're right. You're like, oh, very smart. But then that happens and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. So Blood Simple that Francis McDormand stars in, it like can't like one of their Coen brothers' first movies. I think it is maybe their first Maybe their first movie. There's an epic escape scene involving Francis McDormand, like, getting out of a bathroom when people are about to, like, kill her. Mm -hmm. And that was, like, the well-executed version of this scene. But I was like, ooh, they love this, like, bathroom scene, window in the back, like, finding great escape routes kind of setups. And I, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, right, you're like... But yet she's behind the curtain. Yeah, <laughs> that reflection when you're like, "Fuck." Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yep. I mean, that was like clearly for comedy's sake, but like it was still kind of awesome to mm-hmm. think that like she could outsmart them that way. She, yeah, she keeps going. Mm-hmm. The thing I love about that scene is it oscillates so well between hilarious and horrifying. Because she's mm-hmm. just sitting there watching television, um, and yeah. like there's something funny going on on TV. She's even laughing to herself. Steve Buscemi just sort of walks up with a ski mask and is peering through the door because oh. he can't see. And she's just kind of like sitting she there, just like sort of stares what? at him. Up until we get the swell with the music as he bursts through with the crowbar. Mm-hmm. Suddenly she's really engaged and she runs. Peter Stormare as just sort of mountain of a guy bursts through the front door and tries to restrain her. She runs upstairs. She runs into the bathroom and she's frantically trying to call the police. And from under the door, they yank the phone cord right out of her hand. That was kind of cool. <laughs> yes, it's it. The whole thing is set up so grimly, and then, but you can also hear as they're trying to break down the door, mm-hmm. Steve Buscemi using the crowbar, um, and them having some sort of apparent argument or disagreement about it because you hear Steve Buscemi shout, "You want to do it?" <laughs> so it bounces, and then of course, when she finally bursts out from behind the shower curtain, she's like hilariously, you know. Mm-hmm. Sort of uh, running around with the uh, shower curtain kind of blinding her and bumping into things. But then she falls down the stairs and is knocked out. Mm. I thought she died. I, I did, did too. Like, yeah. the first time, I did too. Because yeah. he pushes her and nothing happens and then it just kind of cuts. And right. so you're like, I, are we assuming she's dead now? Mm. Okay. Yeah. And Which makes later on in the movie also very interesting when we get to that too. Where I was like, what what's actually happening right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, as we go on, I think we'll maybe be pronounced this it's i think the strength of the film is the way it can so frequently shift between being really 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 funny and also really a pretty dark and upsetting quote-unquote true crime story mm. kind of thing there's a l- incredible amount of violence it's a very violent movie seven people are killed in the movie but interestingly like they save the blood mostly 
for the last like big like holy shit <laughs> and even do. that it isn't like the focus of a lot of the shots and things like that which right. i think is kind of interesting because like it is like a, a gory movie but not in a way that like a lot of other movies that i watch are gory mm-hmm. where it's like very full frontal like it is kind of like off to the side a lot it seems like which is kind of interesting or it's like incidental violence in yeah. a way yeah it's and they really cut gratuitous. and don't show you certain things, but then show you other things that are pretty brutal. And it's interesting how they choose to do that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the editing of the whole film is, like, absolutely mm. fantastic with, like, the comedic beats mm-hmm. perfectly mm-hmm. And they executed. edited it themselves as well. Oh, okay, cool. Also, another thing that I meant to point out before, as uh, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare are driving in the car, Steve Buscemi is obviously this loudmouth character. Peter Stormare is, like, a locked box and barely speaking ever. Um, which creates some tension between them that's really interesting. But one of the lines that Peter Stormare has, one of the few he has in the entire film, is um, we go to Pancake's house. Um, <laughs> I, I wrote that down. I loved that line so much. And when he when they went to do the first take for the film, um, Stormare had read the script, and, and he went to do the shot and just, of course, said, we go to Pancake House. And Ethan Cohen headphones, you know, on the side of the set just sort of, like, stopped everything dead. And it was like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. What, what, what did you say there? It's Pancake's house. And Stormer was like, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I just figured it was a typo. And the, the Cohen's cold response was, there are no typos in our scripts. Damn. Damn. Whoa. <laughs> Which but that does the, make such a great, like, that is such an right. important difference. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, like, also with all the stammering William H. Macy does throughout the film, that yeah. was phonetically written into the script. What? Like, almost... Almost every stammer, every ya, uh, all of it was written into the script to represent so it phonetically. Um, yeah, which which really I think helped with the film as well as the work of um, uh, Liz Himmelstein, who was the uh, the dialect coach, mm. and also um, one of the two girls that we'll meet later in the film, or, or a little earlier. She's one of the uh, the women that um, that Buscemi and Stormare sleep with. Which is also another great shot, I think, because like we see the two of them in the hotel and they're it's, you know, the four of them, they're <laughs> having sex in the separate beds yep. uh, and then it kind of fades out and then it just cuts a hard cut right to them all just sort of like really banal sitting in bed just watching The Tonight Show. Yeah, and just, like they just chilled out. Like a very... Yeah. Un, like un, an entirely unromantic post-coital like posture just like propped up against uh-huh. bed watching TV. Um, Yeah. Really great, really great little bit there too. Which you get a lot of those sh- those shots too, with also Frances McDermott and her husband just kind of sitting in bed watching TV. So that's also kind of interesting mm-hmm. that you have these two. Like, yeah, it like, but like that one is like obviously very different than you know. It's like much colder than this. Very sweet and one of yeah, like one of the best like little romances I've seen in a movie. Uh-huh. It's adorable. Um, yeah, They're it's so, so adorable. They're so good. Well, just the fact that like. She's like, oh, it's early. I have to go to work. And he's like, no, I'm going to go get up and get, make you eggs. And like, that, that's such like a small little gesture that's so beautiful. And yeah. And then after she steps outside, he's sitting there just eating the eggs, presumably mm-hmm. just going to go about his day. And she walks back in and says, hon, Prowler needs a jump because the car <laughs> won't start. So cute. Um, just before we meet the two of them, um, Peter Stormare and um, Steve Buscemi, their two characters, Carl and Gare, are driving Jean uh, to a cabin's. Uh, but they're stopped midway by the police because they've got dealer tags. Um, in this uh, confrontation, Buscemi tries to bribe this police officer, but the police officer doesn't have it and asks him to step out of the car, at which point Stormare shoots him in the head 
um, right into Steve Buscemi's lap. That spurt of blood was, yeah, was rough. As Buscemi put it, "Whoa, Daddy!" <laughs> it's pretty rough. Yeah, maybe an appropriate use of the word "Daddy." Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> and then, as he's clearing Buscemi, the body off the road, uh, another car, a series of people come by. Two bystanders, two people in a car. Um, and as they pass them, they obviously see what's going on, and they start flooring it. Uh, Peter Stormare abandons Buscemi and the dead officer to go chase after them. Uh, and I really love that shot. Mm, yeah. When you see Stormare just sort of staring straight ahead, he, without, like, looking away from the road, just lifts the cigarette right out the window and grabs the wheel. And he's got this, like, singular... It, it's the character in a whole is singular focus. It almost looks like watching like safari footage of like a lion mm. hunting something. Yeah, yeah, like zoning in on the the tail lights of that car, being like, "This is my prey. I, I must continue." Like the complete opposite yeah. of like <laughs> shaky, nervous William H Macy. Even shaky, nervous Steve Buscemi. Who breaks once in a while. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, just that real. See that road scene is so scary. When Sam, you pointed out like already driving on a road at night with snow with no street lights, mm -hmm. and then this pers pursuit, mm -hmm. you're like, this can only go one way. This yeah. is really intense. Yeah, when they flip off the road, mm -hmm. you're like, oof. Yeah. Yeah, and all you see is just the taillights go out in the front car, mm -hmm. and then the guy driving is like, what is what is happening? And yeah, then... and the fact that he couldn't even like notice that the person in front of him had an accident until he was right there is also insane. Yeah. And then also, um, yeah, right after that, I mean, it's a, a pretty harsh cut. He, um, he, he finds the, uh, turned over car. He, uh, shoots one of the passengers as they're trying to make a break for it into the snow. Mm. Um, and then, um, walks back to the car and finds the other person like basically stuck inside mm. the car and injured. And oh, there's this yeah. really grim moment of just like uh, the two of them locking eyes in this connection, wordless connection mm. of just like, uh, it's really cold. And then he just pulls, pulls back and fires into the car and then the hard cut. Mm. Very punctuated. Yes. And then is the next scene when we first meet Francis McDormand? Mm -hmm. And then that's, yeah, the, like I said before, the film has to, uh, has to show you the cold before it brings you to the warmth. I thought that mm. was, yeah, it would, that was such a good comment where you meet the <laughs> yeah. whole sort of on one side the cast of characters mm -hmm. that is going to be carrying or sort of emblematic the of the worst like, combination evil. of villains working together. <laughs> and then yeah. I loved the scene that so the for the way that you see Francis and her husband for like sleeping in bed together, it first cuts to the mallard ducks and this beautifully lit scene. It looks like a like mm -hmm. a like a still life. Like a like a <laughs> yeah or a Rembrandt or something like the lighting is so beautiful and this beautiful like music is playing and um, it's totally a scene of warmth and you see the paint brushes and the, the, the duck, the duck and the paint, the wet paint and everything. And then it pans to them in bed. Mm -hmm. and you're like, yes, this is a cold to warm, beautiful <laughs> scene transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I unfortunately, I can't recall the actor who plays Norm. Um, he's in so many things though. He is. Um, but is he, he in and like the, uh, the anchor man and all those movies. That's, no, that's a different guy. Yeah, no, he oh, was shit. in like Zodiac I, yeah. and was in a couple other movies. <laughs> oh, so very right, different. He was in Zodiac. That's exactly what Carey I was picturing show. him in. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about Drew Carey, Drew Carey show. show. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but he and uh, he and Francis McDormand worked on a character backstory that wasn't in the script, mm-hmm. um, which is basically that both she and Norm were police. They met on the force, um, and at a certain point, um, they decided that uh, they didn't necessarily need to be on the force together, and that Norm also had this passion for painting. He really wanted mm-hmm. to express himself in that way, especially through these like mm-hmm. Kincaid esque like. Just sort of like very scenic little like paintings. Um, so Frances McDormand, who was at the time the better police officer, decided that she would take the helm as a cop mm-hmm. and he would stay at home and would do his paintings, but would also support her in things like making her eggs or jumping her car at five in the morning, things like bringing that. Her bringing her Arby's. Oh, which also makes a lot of sense. Like, I just assumed that like everyone knew them as a couple because they live in like a small town, but like mm-hmm. all of those cops ask about Norm and like talk about him pretty frequently. So that makes total sense that he was yeah. like a former cop. And that's like a very nice little detail. Uh, his name is John Carroll Lynch. That's it. Oh, that's right. And this was, I guess, his jumping, his jump, jumping off point. His launch pad. Mm-hmm. His wow. launch pad. He brings her lunch later to brings her Arby's. the Arby's. He brings yes. her Arby's. Yeah. Bring me Arby's. That's yeah. As the honestly, as soon as he just offers to get out of bed very early with her, even though he doesn't have to, to get up and make her eggs, I was like, hell yeah, this is the best relationship <laughs> ever. I don't need to see anything else. <laughs> so good. They're so sweet. Yeah, it was great. Well, and even kind of fast forward to the end of the movie when she returns home after all of this. Oh, she's so excited for him. After like the case of a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. where um just murder and blood everywhere. Is she asks him how this painting competition went to mm-hmm. get on stamps. Yeah. I got the three cent. <laughs> I know and he's really disappointed and she totally like brings him back up like, no, that's great. Like I'm so proud of you. And yeah. people need the smaller stamps mm-hmm. for when they're left with a bunch of the old ones. <laughs> You know, Norm, we're doing pretty good. Oh, I love it. Teary-eyed at the end of that movie almost every time. Um, but before before we get there, also, um, what's happening now is that Carl and Gare, um, Basemi and Stormare, have gotten Jean to the cabin. Um, there's a pretty brutal scene where they let her out of the car, and she's, you know, she's got the, the hood over her head. She's not wearing shoes. She's basically in pajamas, and she's just sort of stumble, like stumbling and walking through the snow with no idea where she is. And the two of them are just sort of standing. Well, Buscemi's cracking up and you can see Stormer almost kind of break a little bit, almost mm. a smile. And it's, again, that weird and tenuous balance that they maintain throughout the entire film between hilarity and horror, where it's a brutal scene that is objectively not funny. But also Buscemi's laughter is a little contagious. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Really and the way bizarre... it is filmed is like it is very comical the yeah. way she is like stumbling and running. But at the same time, I was like, damn, they just like kind of introduce her as this like very simple housewife. And like she fights from the very beginning Fights and is continues to fight later on after all of the stuff, which I thought was very impressive. Yeah. Although we actually, one thing that's uh, kind of noted about the film is that we don't hear her speak after she's kidnapped ever again. Yeah. yeah she like whimpers and stuff. She just sort of becomes, yeah, sort of like a mute plot device in a way. It's, yeah, it's kind of odd. Which, I don't know. I don't know what else you would have gotten from the character within the context of the story. I don't know if it would have really added mm-hmm. anything necessarily. But um, but at any rate, yeah, they get her to the cabin and then um, that's when we learn that... Um, that Marge has been working the case. She's found out uh, a lot of details that are kind of uh, bringing her closer and closer to uh, to figuring out exactly what's going on. At this point back home, uh, Carl has uh, has to deal with Wade stepping in, um, Gene's father and uh, his father-in-law, 
who will insist that he Grossman. be a part of it. And Stan Grossman, who I love. Stan Grossman's a great secondary everyone character. Everyone is, like, everyone is just establishes him as a reliable guy. Like, <laughs> yeah. if Stan Grossman says it's good, it's good. You want him in your corner. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought it was interesting that the kid is the only one that shows very genuine stress over yep. the fact that his mother has been kidnapped and is very visibly upset. Yeah. While, like, yeah. everyone else is just very focused on, like, the money and how the situation is yeah. going down. Her father's, like, posturing, like, it's my money, it's yeah. my daughter, I'll does, take care of it. And he does this. show a little bit more, like like distress it seems like over her being kidnapped like he definitely in his own way cares about her and is a, like plans on killing like the dude who is like you know yeah coming to get the ransom but like not in like a healthy way in in any sort of you know way like that but yeah the kid is the only one who is having like a very legitimate reaction <laughs> yeah. to what is going down well, meanwhile think... oh go ahead no you go or just the fact that William H. Macy has to rehearse sounding upset. And, I know. Um, there's that, yeah, scene where you, like, the phone is still off. Like, mm-hmm. he hasn't picked up the phone and he's rehearsing. Oh, like, who is just like, what's the dad's name? Norm? Wait. Oh, Jerry. Wait. Yeah. When, Jerry. Wait, but what? he's calling He's calling a police officer. I forget what that guy's name is, but. So and so, it's Jerry. I'm, uh, I'm worried about Gene. Oh. And he stops. He's like, no. I, I'm I'm so worried I'm so worried about Gene and mm-hmm. you see him practicing it with different inflections. Should he say wife? He's like, oh, geez, Gene. things are right. really bad here. <laughs> and I, before it cuts to, or like while he's rehearsing, <laughs> there's like static on the TV. And when you all were talking about like p- characters watching TV throughout mm-hmm. the movie, it got me kind of thinking about like how t- TV kind of plays a divide. Like there yeah, are static TV scenes. Yeah, yeah when he's trying to get the TV mm-hmm. to work and thinking shot, about this, mm-hmm. this story and thinking about like true crime characters and like mm-hmm. h- how do people watch true crime shows? There's half this fascination with a grim tale. Do you actually care about what mm-hmm. happened to people that are involved in these like mm-hmm. horrific That's interesting, events yeah. and crimes? And then Dave, when you brought up, sort of the device that Gene ultimately ends up playing by mm-hmm. the end of the movie being essentially just sort of this prop in the corner who's mm-hmm. alive at one point and then, spoiler, just dead. dead. We don't no even see her death. Even. No explanation. You just see blood on the oven. That it's sort of this slow sort of, I don't know, desensitized, like, way of like viewing her as mm-hmm. just sort of this prop. which is also funny adding to the fact that at the very beginning when they're like this is a true story and it says like something like out of respect for the victims yeah and she does not get much <laughs> respect as a victim <laughs> great like, point you're barely you barely realize she's actually dead at the end of the I movie didn't. <laughs> i didn't either i assumed it was the same thing we're like i don't know she like oh is that over. what you were talking about when you were when we said oh i thought she was dead no, in when the she begin- fell down the stairs right Again, at this point, Wade has stepped in, and he's he goes to meet Carl, Steve Buscemi, um, to hand over the money. Um, one thing that's important to note is that, in the, as of the beginning of the film, um, the ransom is different for different people. As far as uh, Peter <laughs> yes. Stormare and uh, Steve Buscemi know, the ransom is uh, 800... 80000 dollars. Split between um, them. Yeah, so uh, so forty thousand each. Or no, yeah, sw- no, that's not even the case. It was going to be eighty thousand altogether. Um, uh, and they, yeah. And they were going to get um, 
uh, 40000 that they were going to split down the middle. And then Jerry was going to get the rest of it. And uh, then they demand I'm the full 80 after they are like, we killed people. So we are getting all of this now. And little do they know is that um, William H. Macy asked um, his father-in-law for $1 million. Mm. Yeah. And was only going to give them the $80,000 mm-hmm. and keep... The hundreds He's, of thousands. He, he tries to do the Ponzi scheme, fails at that. Tries to do ske- out scheme the hitmen and like can't pull that off. Tries out yeah. smart Francis McDormand. Fucking yeah, idiot. Yeah, it's like from the beginning, you're like, dude, you are fucked because you are not good at this. No, at he's just all. such an ass. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the worst scene is when the um, father in law, Stan Grossman, William H. Macy, they're meeting at like a diner to talk about what to do because. He doesn't want them going to the police because he's in on this. So he's like, we have to handle it internally. They say, if we go to the mm-hmm. police, they're watching us, whatever. And then I think it's Stan Grossman or father-in-law go, well, you know, how are you going to talk to your Scotty about this? And he like doesn't even Scotty think about it. Never yep. once thought about yeah. how his son would like play a factor into mm-hmm. the scheme of his. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also being like so willing to give up your wife like that. Go fuck yourself. That's mm-hmm. terrible. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. This whole scheme. Mm-hmm. Which is why I think, in a way, the true story framing makes it believable because it's it's one of those things that we're like it almost does feel stranger than fiction, but it is. Yeah. Um. So at this point, um, he he meets uh Jerry's father-in-law, Gene's father, uh, meets Steve Buscemi in the parking lot to exchange this money. Um. At this point, Steve Buscemi is fed up and has had enough. Um. And uh shoots shoots this father-in-law. Uh, he goes down and uh, defensively shoots Steve Buscemi in the face. Uh, Steve Buscemi, you know, is uh, outraged and shoots him to death there in the parking lot mm. uh, and takes the money and the realizes. The father does do one last. Att- oh yeah, the, I liked the last attempt to, which is the craziest mm-hmm. shoot Steve bullet wound I think I have ever mm-hmm. seen Just in like a movie. The gash right across the oh, cheek. Oh, it was insane. Yeah. Oh yeah, a jawline through cheek, like yeah. Yeah. across the cheek. Oof. Yeah, it gets him really good. <laughs> and then, like for the rest of the movie, Steve Buscemi's hands are just like stained with this blood. Mm-hmm. It's just like Ooh, yeah. super visual. Mm-hmm. I know because there's that part where after this all happens, Steve Buscemi is burying the money, and right after when he realizes that it's in blood. way more. Yeah, and then he's burying the rest of it to like hide it and come back for it later. And his hands are so red that I was like, I can't even tell if this is blood or it's so cold. And you're trying yeah. to do this with your bare hands that it's just like the freezing cold is turning your skin this color. I was like, whatever's happening is terrible. That's all I know. Yeah. Snow and true cr- or like crime mm-hmm. stories are, I feel like a, this interesting match. It's like, <laughs> You can't get away with a lot in the snow. Your mm. tracks are in the snow. Your <laughs> so blood true. is in the snow. Yeah. Like, yeah. pretty much the snow, unless it snows again, mm-hmm. is going to be capturing literally everything. Well, and she even is interesting, because like, yeah. I was thinking when they originally went to the crime scene and were finding the bodies and stuff in my head, because, you know, my, you know, layman true crime, like forensics and knowledge, I was like, I wonder how that affects like them trying to figure out the time of death, because that's based on like body temperature and all of this stuff. So I was like, does it make it harder when it's in the cold? Because you have to factor in more things. But then at the same time, like, yeah, you're right. Like so much shows in the in the snow. So and she's hard. been able to tell like, oh there was a bigger dude and then a smaller dude mm-hmm. right who yeah. killed these three people mm-hmm. and so yeah just watching steve buscemi try like try to bury this money in the snow with the blood hands and mm-hmm. a red ice scraper <laughs> and the yeah. friggin red ice scraper that he just then sticks in the snow <laughs> as a marker being like i'm gonna come back to this and you're like dude there nothing. are you've just you're in like a rural highway there are foot 
footprints that mm-hmm. lead from the road to this bloody pile with a thing sticking in it. Because he looks like, side to side and it's like perfectly beautiful snow <laughs> that has not been touched. It's like, yeah, it's this identical is... to where he just buried the uh-huh. This is well yeah. disguised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> no it's one's like when I was a this. child, I buried my Aladdin doll at the beach and then put a <gasps> oh, little no. stick in the sand and I was like, I'm going to come back for this later. Oh, no. I did not find that Aladdin uh, doll. Oh, no. That's so sad. Um, but so Steve Buscemi, just to talk about like how great of a performance this was, there's a, a part that I actually commented on while we were watching the film, which was um, when he has that bullet wound and he's trying to like mm. stop the mm-hmm. bleeding. He like when he peels the old piece of like it looks it's like, like just paper. A napkin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it looks yeah. disgusting. He like winces and like that's such great attention to detail because like yeah, yeah, that would fucking hurt. Everyone's performance was so oh, good. good in this movie. Mm-hmm. It was very hard for me to pick like who were my favorites because like everyone was so great as sleazy as William H. Macy is I'm like he's doing this like weird sleazy but trying to be like a nice guy thing at the same time that's like very interesting and Francis McDormand was great. What's it? Peter Stormare? Is that Peter what is Stormare, it? yeah. Yeah, like he, I thought, was really amazing right off the bat. We were making um, lots of comparisons to him and Ryan Gosling in Drive. Yes, mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling was hardcore inspired by this dude. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Gosling, please tell us um, when you eventually listen to this podcast because it is the best. Number listen- one in the world. Yeah, number Thanks, one. Dad. Yeah, so you should be listening to this right now. But tell us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Real quick before we wrap up uh, the plot. Uh, a little bit of thought about the snow now that we're talking about the snowy landscape. I mean, yes. it's pretty much presented as at times like a horizonless void of white. Mm-hmm. Like, like it really feels like a shot flatness. Where the, the credits are, or like the first credits. When he's first coming with a car, yeah. And just the whole white out. And then slowly things come into focus as you see the road. That was a cool shot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just so interesting, too, because, you know, being someone who's from a state that gets snow, but not all the time and Mm. not as intensely Mm -hmm. as Minnesota, like, you you hear about the seasonal depression and, like, that's immediately what I started thinking about, like, oh, shit, I feel, like, already really gloomy and whatever. And then you have um, Frances McDormand, who is just so happy and chipper. (laughs) And you're like, this this creates such, like, an awesome juxtaposition. Mm. So, like, I appreciated that a lot. When she shows up at the crime scene, she's like, where is everyone? He's like, oh, well, Margie, you know it's it's cold. cold. Margie. (laughs) (laughs) And, well... One thing the, that I think we've been talking about a lot this month and um, in, in uh, December is whether or not the snow is real. Very important question the that most. was raised by Christine um, at the beginning of this month. Mm-hmm. This, Big questions. The time of filming this, uh, I think it was, it mu- I think it must have been before, probably the winter of 1995, I believe it was, because the film was released in 96. Um, but they did want to try to film it in the winter, you know, for the snowscape. Uh, it was the second warmest winter on record in the state the year they filmed it. So they, did they film it in North Dakota? Uh, they filmed... Uh, or in Minnesota? Uh, they filmed parts of it elsewhere. They filmed a lot of it elsewhere in Canada and other places. But the places where they did film um, in Minnesota, they are... Uh, yeah, in Minnesota, they needed to use um, these machines that basically took uh, ice or um, large blocks of ice and just like crushed it up to create the effect mm. of snow. That explains the roads. 
I kept mm-hmm. thinking about, wow, the roads are really clean. Mm. <laughs> They're not snowy at all. Great salt. Because what was the other movie that it was garbage snow that they were using? Uh, snow, snow Day. day. Yeah, yeah, there there we go. Garbage yeah. snow. <laughs> this weird made recycled snow. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, snow yeah. Day. Mm. That's my favorite fact about that movie. <laughs> garbage rough. snow. And there are a lot of scenes of eating that snow. Nobody <laughs> ate the snow in Fargo, but... Sibusheni did put that. it on his face. Oh, you're right. So, mm, mm. let's hope those ice blocks were sanitary. <laughs> so, then Sibusheni, he arrives back really at, the, uh, at the cabin. So, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, his face wasn't really cut. <laughs> when she said the ice blocks be sanitary, whatever. Oh, it's, it's definitely not a big deal. <laughs> oh, right. I've I've merged reality <laughs> with the movie because we can't figure out the characters' names and we're going. Sorry, back. I'm it's sorry, all, Dave. It's it's you know like a like a true crime show. It some's based in fiction and some's based You're in right. reality. True. I don't know. You're right. Sorry. Go ahead, Dave. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> so we round the film out uh, just to wrap this up. Um, they. Steve Buscemi comes back to the cabin. Uh, he's got the money so as to maintain the illusion that, that they're now taking the entire eight uh, eighty thousand, um, and they're going to split it right down the middle. Um, they get into sort of an argument as much as they can, since Peter Stormare's character basically doesn't speak. But Buscemi uh, gets into an argument about how they're going to split the car. Storms out of the house and is apparently going to take off with the vehicle um, and return to grab the money out of the field. Um, but just as he's walking to the car, Peter Stormare bursts out of the house and mows him down with an axe. That's an interesting mm. scene where you do, you think that the scene has has sort of de-escalated. That like mm-hmm. Steve Buscemi's mm-hmm. yelling, yelling, yelling. Is like, all right, fuck this, I'm leaving. And then the other guy's just staring at the TV, and you're like, okay, situation resolved. Mm-hmm. And then you just see Steve Buscemi walking, and then in the distance, the guy just coming out of the cabin with a. Mm-hmm. Like a shovel or mm-hmm. something. It's a huge axe. Like a, it's hoe a really or something. big axe. Oh, it's an yeah. axe, yeah. And then it just like whacks him, but you don't even see anything. It yeah, just cuts. and then it cuts. Yeah. Mm. And just before it cuts, when Steve Buscemi turns around, because like there's that snap moment where like he's mm. walking away and just sort of like um, disgusted with the situation. And as he hears the door open and we see that he's running at him with the axe, he just turns around really slowly, uh, almost as if like, oh, where are we going with this? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. as soon as he's fully dead. turned, is oh, God, and then <laughs> sliced, and then it's over. They don't even talk about that Gene's dead, I don't think. No, they, they don't like, even say the words. They just say like. What happened to her? Yeah. Oh, she wouldn't stop shrieking. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's all. Yeah, that's all he says. And you're just like, oh, oh OK. <laughs> and she's yeah, she's dead yeah. on the ground, oven covered in blood. Um. From there, uh, we see uh, Marge driving around the lake because of a tip-off uh, about a loudmouth via a local bar, which turns out also, to be the first Also, that dude center. that gives them the oh, information that's a, that's a wonderful is little scene incredible. Too. Yeah. <laughs> when he just goes, what does he say? I wrote down, he goes, end of story. After repeating the same thing over and over again. She like, basically told me to call it in, so I called it in. End of story. (laughs) Almost as though it's a joke. Like, it feels like a punchline. And they're like, and then he called me a jerk, but he didn't call me a jerk. (laughs) And then they just talk about the weather, the policeman that's talking to him. Everything about that is amazing. It's so lonely up there at Moose Lake. Which I guess is also, uh, somebody pointed out online, like, they thought about, like, how that could probably be an affect of, like, their two characters, where Steve Buscemi is out there with someone who won't talk the whole time and it's yeah. probably like kind of weighing on him and driving him nuts. Um, 
But that ultimately leads uh, Marge to uh, Moose Lake, where right off of Moose Lake, she recognizes the Tan Sierra that uh, was traded to them by Jerry uh, as part of the kidnapping. Um, and she approaches the house. Um, as she comes around the back of the house, we hear uh, a sort of grinding noise. And then we get a pretty famous scene um, in cinematic history, as the, or American cinematic history of the 90s, as they, she rounds the corner and finds Peter Stormare's character grinding up what it what remains of Steve Buscemi's mm-hmm. dead body in a large wood chipper. Mm-hmm. Which also is played for laughs a little bit because his you see leg. his like legs sticking out. And he's like just pushing it down. And he's like jiggling a little. Yeah. Wait, that also white sock just coming out. Yeah. Oof. And when and when he throws the bit of log that he's using to like jam the leg down mm-hmm. at Frances McDormand, and she just ducks like you know, so it's like he kind of knows there's not much he can do in that situation, and like he has a very weird, slow reaction to it. And he's like, "Well, this is all I can do is like throw a thing." Yeah, I mean, it was funny, but I had this moment of being like, "Whoa, she's a pregnant woman who's going into this nightmare Absolutely. hellscape." Yeah, and then just like shoots him like a yeah. badass. Yeah, from yeah. across, from a good distance across the lake, shoots him in the leg and brings him down, and then apprehends him. Mm-hmm. That was a great, the distant shot. Very good. Yeah. And that you see her, and then you see the guy, and it's like the meeting of the two opposite mm-hmm. characters, like ultimately in this. Conclu- it's very epic, and there's like super epic music playing. The theme swells. Yeah. The whole soundtrack is is awesome. Mm-hmm. There's this very sort of like, there's some like loot. Not there. There's no loot, but like it's very sort of like <laughs> nice stringy music. There's like some western feeling music, and then there's some like fucking epic, like like this is the battling of the gods kind of <laughs> music. And I looked up the guy Carter Burwell. He's like done the soundtracks for like all the Coen Brothers movies, mm. which yeah, is like really cool. Anyhow, that was a side note, but nice. <laughs> epic distance scene. Well, yes. and I love how that's a callback to when. Um, he is shooting the people mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the movie who see Steve Buscemi trying to carry off the dead yeah, state yeah, trooper, yeah. chase him down. So, but he shoots to kill when she mm. shot him in the legs. So I thought that was like a good once mm. again back to our yeah, discussion of like good true. versus evil. Of like yeah. he shoots to kill, she shoots to like apprehend the stuff. Which is how we wish a lot of police officers would. Yeah. Oh man, if Ooh. only. Mm. Um, but, and then the ending has this very, like, simplistic, just her being, like, like, looking at all of this crazy shit that she has just explored and been, like, this was all for money. And, and that was it, which I thought was so interesting, like, such an interesting way to start, like, wrapping up the movie, just, like, in a very simple way like that. It was all of this for a little bit of money, and now you're here. And it's a beautiful day. I'll never understand it. Yeah. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. That also just kind of makes me think of like, understand it rather. like our our obsession with like true crime. I think kind of ties into that as well. Like I just all this carnage, all this is like I don't understand it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of like our obsession with like the macabre. Well, yeah, I, the scene <laughs> where Steve Buscemi is opening the case with all like a million bucks in it, and he's just sort of like haphazard or like just carelessly throwing the money in the back seat and you're like this is exactly what it came like this was <laughs> what all of this convoluted plot and scheming was for and he's just sort of like with his bloody hands just sort of rifling through the money and tossing it yeah. this way and it's mm-hmm. just all very casual and you're like nothing was casual about this entire story hmm. mm-hmm it kind of reminds me of that scene from uh, Parks and Rec where Andy and April go to the bank because Andy's always wanted to hold like 
like a thousand dollars or something, but it's just like ten hundred dollar bills. It's like this isn't really a lot. Give it to me like pennies. It just made me feel bad. Like it's just a case of like things. Mm-hmm. Like all of this and it's just paper. Yeah, like yeah, it's a. It's not even like a. He's excited that there's all of this money. It's just like well, uh, he does kind of say to himself, Jesus Christ, and realizing like you know uh, that this was well out of the proportion of what the arrangement was and so on. But because that's his realization that yeah. William H Macy like asked for the I guess that's when he realized like he asked for the million dollars right. as opposed to just the the 80,000 I guess it was quick thinking on his feet yeah but and William H Macy's character is uh ultimately brought to justice he's apprehended uh shortly thereafter in a North Dakota uh hotel and by, he does uh, try police. to climb out the rear window he tries in the bathroom. The <laughs> oh, it was such a pathetic, like, whiny just, little escape attempt. Like, no, and, bitch, yeah. you're caught. Not wearing pants. Mm-hmm. Just a, an appropriately, like, uh, humiliating end for a, a despicable character. But also, like, what's, what happened to the son? I don't know. That is basically the true, an orphan. That's the true tragedy of this movie yeah. in the end. Is, yeah. No right, grandfather. Two disposed like, of characters. Like father, the mother and the son. A lot of people are thinking son. of the son in yeah. this, you know, it seems like. It's this not accordion-loving, hockey-loving son. <laughs> what an odd child. How's going to look good on so a resume? So well-rounded. So well-rounded. <laughs> All he wants to do is go to the McDonald's and hang out with his friends. Um, you know what they do at the McDonald's. They're not I don't drinking know, my friends and I milkshakes. also used milkshakes. to hang out in the parking lot at a McDonald's Did you just lot. drink milkshakes? Um, no, we just hung out in the parking lot at the McDonald's because <laughs> it was a 24-hour one. So, yeah. Well, that, that in essence, is, uh, is the film as far as the plot goes and everything. Um, it was, uh, as I mentioned before, and uh, as I, I'm... Oh, yeah, to bring Dave, up, did Fargo win the Best Picture Oscar? Did, did it? <laughs> was nominated for Best Picture, shoulder to shoulder with some other films. Um, I believe Jerry Maguire may have been in the running. I know Tom Cruise won Best Actor that year. So uh, interesting to figure out like what movies were all like, you know, contenders. Yeah. Oh, and um, yeah, and actually, if you want a pretty interesting insight into uh, that and the uh, the Academy's process and what wins over other films, uh, there's a pretty good podcast uh, that I guess I'll give a shout out to. It's called um, and the runner up is. Um, which explores films that lost out an Oscar to other mm. films. Huh. Oh, cool. Um, which they did an episode with this, and they <laughs> get into it a bit. Um, it lost to The English Patient. Uh, the English Patient was nominated for uh, quite a few Oscars. Uh, Fargo was nominated for seven, um, which at the time for an independent film was quite a bit and really kind of brought, uh, pretty seri- brought it as a pretty serious contender to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, the English Patient, on the other hand, um, was kind of sweeping um, nominations. It won the Golden Globe that year. And uh, had a lot of other nominations in the sense that it, it had like it was a period piece, so it had a lot of costume design nominations, a lot of cinematography nominations, and like other categories that sort of further advanced it. It was also really championed by uh, Miramax. Uh, this was sort of um, within as uh, as that other podcast points out the sort of the rise of uh, 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 Harvey Weinstein, um, their real like real revving up of like big budget Oscar bait sort of films through Miramax and the company. And ultimately it, uh, it beat out Fargo uh, and won, I believe nine Academy Awards, making it uh, one of the most uh, awarded and most championed films within the Academy's history. I've never, even, I've never even heard most of this movie. Forgettable. Yeah, I've, never <laughs> I've never heard of it in my life. Really? Hmm. All of this never. to say, I hate the English patient. <laughs> Not just because of the Fargo situation. That that's part of it. But this well, movie is it the sucks. cave? 
<laughs> this is a movie that like Seinfeld did a great bit with this, uh. where Elaine. Elaine hated the movie when it came out. Oh, and, and everyone else loved it. Everyone yeah, loved it. I remember this. And like episode. she was being insulted for like going to see like sack lunch or something, which <laughs> yeah, looked like a better movie because she's like looking at the picture. And I was like, how did they all get in there? Because um, they're in a brown bag on the poster. <laughs> yeah. But at any rate, she's in the film uh, finally with her boss and has been quartered into watching it. And he adores it because he's this really pompous like magazine editor, uh, Pete J. Peterman. Oh, what a Peterman's the best. Did, he was so good at, at that role. And he's wonderful. And as they're watching the movie, finally Elaine breaks down um and starts complaining and he turns to her and is just sort of like elaine you don't like the english patient she just shouts i hate it <laughs> she goes oh elaine i had no idea clear now your desk you're fired and she just says immediately in response to that it's just great uh, I'll, gra- I'll grab it by monday and just immediately storms out because she just wants to be away from the english patient <laughs> <laughs> which is interesting because i think about this a lot too like i had a conversation with an uber driver um after i had just seen venom <laughs> And in the, I think it was in the same week I had seen First Man with Ryan Gosling uh, and mm-hmm. then seen Venom later on in the week. And I was like, First Man is great. Um, Ryan Gosling's performance in is, is amazing. Um, I think it's very forgettable and I don't think I need to see it more than once. <laughs> but Venom was like, not a good movie, but I was like... I would probably watch Venom like a couple more times and like be that would be fun. And that's not a forgettable movie. So it was like, yeah, like it's good. And it's like, you know, I it's like going to be nominated for things and probably win some shit and everything. But it's like, what does that actually like matter or mean? Yeah. Um when things like sack lunch are funner, obviously. It's a good I'd rather see sack lunch than the English patient any day. I would, I would love day. to see sack lunch. <laughs> Rochelle Rochelle, uh, Death Blow. I would rather see any of the fictional Seinfeld shows than Someone English patient any day. for all of those movies <laughs> oh, online great. years ago. It was so funny. Yeah. Um, so one last note before I want to leave it open to you guys to, uh, to give your final thoughts. Um, a little bit of closure there. As we talked about at the beginning of the episode, it was, based, it was supposedly based on a true story. And there was a p- supposed rumor that a woman believed it um, and went out searching for uh, Steve Buscemi's buried, uh, buried fortune uh, and froze to death in the uh, Minnesota landscape. Looking for that ice scraper. That story is not true. Uh, the story is uh, the story of a woman uh, named... Uh, Takako Akanushi, um, who was a woman from Japan, um, who actually came to the United States uh, with the intention of killing herself. Um, it was like sort of a a series of failed relationships hmm. and uh, and a job hmm. and this and that. And she came to the United States and she went to uh, Minnesota and froze to death, um, sort of electing to die that way uh, in the in the frozen landscape that's represented in Fargo. A lot of people were quick to jump on this because of the proximity to the. Uh, to the place where the film supposedly occurs and piling on the notion that it was falsely advertised as a true story mm. so that um, it kind of put the Coens in a position where it suggested that they were re- responsible for, or at least indirectly responsible for the death of a person mm. who foolishly sought um, a-, a fortune on the pretense that the film that they made was true. But that story itself, again, and that uh, that inclination, that association is untrue. Well, uh, it was an unrelated suicide. But it's so. But the, I feel like that's so reflective of like how people's minds work. Like, certainly, this woman had a lot of complex stuff going on in her mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. and sure. that is what happened. But mm-hmm. yet, the desire to attach some sensational story to it, some fictionalized sensational story, 
is a better store. It, it's like yeah. that's kind of like the human desire, yeah. the fucked up human desire to to like create attach mm-hmm. fiction to something yeah. that is like extremely complex, nuanced, and like unrelated but well when i was a kid i remember in middle school there was a rumor and who knows if this was true or not that a little kid drowned himself like in the ocean accidentally because he was looking for bikini bottom and oh, i was no. like no that's not I something parents this is a young with. kid and it is stuck with me for forever no. but i was like <laughs> was that just like another one of those weird things that they decided to like blame a death on like this very silly tv show who knows? Oh, mm. people are Jeez. weird. Yeah. Well, does anybody have any kind of final thoughts on Fargo as we kind of round out the episode here? What was the quote from um, uh, the uh, crap? Who were they? I'm forgetting all the names of the things. You, Ebert? You, yeah, Ebert? yeah. Ebert's quote that you mentioned. Oh, I feel like right. that was really good. And I really loved that a lot. Yeah. So the film is really, really accredited. It, um, you know, obviously, again, was it just didn't win for... Best Picture. No, it didn't. It didn't have caves, sand, billowy, sexy linen sheets, possibly blowing in the wind, possibly sex in a cave, or Ray finds and the surrounding three hours of nothing, and um, (laughs) a plane crash, and long distance love. This was a tight hour and a half movie, which I love. God, God bless. Mm. Um. Oh, but yeah. I'm sorry. What were we? Uh, The quote. Sorry. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So um, my totally hatred of the English patient can override most conversation. Um, no, it was uh, it was a quote from Siskel and Ebert. I mean, um, yeah, again, it was really accredited and they, they gave it a lot of accolades. They thought it was one of the best films of the year and they put it on many lists that they would write of about American cinema and just cinema in general. Um, and just midway through the first time they were watching a screening, reportedly um, Siskel turned to Ebert midway through the film, probably about halfway through and just kind of whispered in his ear. Uh, but audibly enough that another person heard it, I guess. Whispered um, sweet nothings. <laughs> just whispered. It was. Uh, <laughs> come here, come here, Ross. Oh my God. They said of the movie, um, or at least uh, Cisco said to Ebert, "This is why we love movies." And these are like two of the among the most respected American uh, cinema critics um, within the history of American film. Um, so that that quote kind of uh, kind of weighs heavy, I think, as uh, as a statement about. The qualitative uh, features of the film, um, just how well it's how well it's shot, the the story that it explores, the network of uniquely interesting characters that it weaves, um, none of whom, despite being evil, are necessarily unlikable, um, or at least that's my takeaway. So, um, so yeah, I, I know that they really revered the film, and uh, I uh, I tend to agree. And it's and it was like a nice thing to hear too, like you know hearing like a different voice like not like this big budget movie that came out that was like the Mm -hmm. thing that made them remember it was like just one of these movies that was really well done and well written and well acted and that's you know that good reminder of like why we we watch movies and why we talk about movies yeah you're tooting (laughs) (laughs) isn't that what it was he says you're like you're you're darn tooting you're darn tooting (laughs) When he's going to do like the car check to see if like there's no car missing, <laughs> you darn tootin', I'm gonna do it. Ah, uh, what the Christ! What the Christ! <laughs> there's such a difference between you're tootin' and you're darn tootin'. You're darn tootin'. You're tootin'. You're going for there. You really mean like, business when you throw in that darn. You're darn tootin'. You're tootin'. <laughs> yeah, there's there's. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that darn's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. 
Um, can I say something like final word on mm. this, which is, um, I I was excited to watch a movie that you liked so much, but I also was like dreading it a little bit <laughs> because, um, typically when movies are like so high regarded like this, I I'm just so bored and I'm like, oh god, this sucks so much. I just don't like <laughs> like them. I liked this. I'm pleasantly surprised. So thanks, Dave. Nice, nice. Citizen Kane. Ugh. <laughs> It's, it's oh, a the slow. room trashing scene. It's just like one of those things where like, this is the best movie in the world. And then you watch it and I was like, okay. This sucks. <laughs> I get I get the reasoning and the little bits here and there. Like those things that are really good, but like, eh. But Rosebud, am I right? Here's the thing. Just because it's the <laughs> I first. I wish you could all see Christine's face. Just because it's the first doesn't mean it's the best. Exactly. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Again, I'll probably watch Venom more times than I watch Citizen Kane. <laughs> Butter with that, everybody. <laughs> yep. I'll say if you want to watch any more sad sack William H. Macy uh, character roles, Magnolia and Boogie Nights. He plays a really sad cameraman in Boogie Nights, and he oh. plays a he's really sad. He's always sad. He's always sad, <laughs> I know, but time. two movies I recently watched, and he plays the same character. Jurassic Park 3. Is he, he has sad? a good time in Is Wild Hogs. But that movie is not really Oh, shit, Wild oh, Hogs. Maybe we I should end. Avoid. We should just stop. We should do Little Who in The Grinch. Oh, yeah. We should just stop while we're ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's right. those, those eyes, those sad eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, Will, <laughs> William H. Macy, if you're listening, pick better roles. Yeah. No, no, I love well, you. No, no, I, yeah, just if you're up. listening... <laughs> I love you, and you're a great actor. Pick different but... roles, but like we just wish you looked happier sometimes. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. You were yeah, has anyone watched um what's that, what's his show Shameless? Oh, Shameless is, is it good? good yeah. Everyone tells me it's great. I just don't know I if don't I'm interested. Care. I would yeah. guess that's pretty good. Hmm. Whoa, I'm so sorry. This is tangential. We can end the thing. <laughs> well, now you gotta share. <laughs> Google listened to our conversation. I did no. not type this in. Get I did not type this in. What does it say? What does it say? I can't read it. It says 22 Jump Street. <laughs> <laughs> I did Another not type this in Google. Another movie that I will watch more times this is so than I watch Citizen Kane. Is that your rating <laughs> system? Past, will I watch it more or less times than for Citizen Kane? For the past yes. four days, my phone has been giving me alerts in the morning that says, uh, ask me, a, or like, t- tell Google, tell me a joke. Tell Google, What's my day look like? Tell Google, what does the traffic look like? And I swipe, I say, no, go away. And it fucking... It sounds like you have a stalker. (laughs) My fucking phone. Turns out my my family thought I was crazy at Christmas when I said I don't trust their goddamn Alexa because it's like the government listening into us and they thought I was like a fucking psycho. All right, Ron Swanson. All right, Ron Swanson. Well, if I any... don't trust that shit, you know? Alexa, you can play Jeopardy? It's the government or it's demons. Whatever it is, it's scary, and I don't want any part of it. Well, if anyone other than the government and demons are listening, <laughs> uh, we'll be rejoining you next month uh, with a new theme. Um, although we do still have uh, some episodes coming up yeah, in January we... that we're looking forward to. We It was the Christmas time. It was holidays. It was so our Christmas. schedule got weird. So, you know, I don't think we have to apologize for anything or whatever. You'll take what we give you. Just, yeah, just, I'm a little Just deal sorry. with it. Whatever. <laughs>
it's we're you're lucky that we decided to record for you. <laughs> Here's in the December. thing. Here's the thing. You're all our friends and family. You already know who you we are. Know. You know. You've seen you my know. stressed out, like wrinkly face. Like you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been crazed for a month, but now it'll be better, and it'll be fun. I think the rest yeah. of January is going to be good. We got yeah. two pretty special yeah. episodes coming up. Yeah, it's going to be cool. So you want to be sure to tune in, and you can monitor us on the socials. That's uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, um, Tori will be continuing her yes. monthly tradition. I am doing Chill and Kill Horror Night still at Century Bar for Sunday of every month. Uh, tomorrow I will be showing Mandy, so by the time you listen to this, it will have Sorry. already <laughs> happened. But I luckily know what I'm doing for February. Uh, I'm doing My Bloody Valentine, the original, uh, which is yes. fucking great. So I'm real stoked. Um, I'm probably... As long as I get my shit together, I'll have, like, more treats, and it'll be festive and stuff. So, yeah, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, good stuff, everybody. Again, uh, thanks for uh, chilling with us during yes. this uh, cold month. Um, we have a few more episodes coming up for January, so stay tuned, and we will see you later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Google is listening. <laughs>
where contingencies frequently fail, and where even an act of questioning or over-examining its unpredictability predictably guarantees destruction. I'm reminded of two quotes from another pair of their films that illustrate the recurring philosophical themes of their work. From 2014's A Serious Man, another film that we've covered, uh, main character Lawrence Gobnick's summation of the uncertainty principle goes as follows, quote, it proves that we can never really know what's going on. Also, their best picture winning magnum opus, 2007's No Country for Old Men, offers the striking retort to Tommy Lee Jones' vainly forlorn sheriff, quote, you can't stop what's coming. These two quotes are key to understanding the cinematic worldview of the Coens. You never truly understand what's happening and you can't stop what's coming. This is true of the end of Fargo. While it seems like a more serene and hopeful ending, Marge's repetition of Norm's offering two more months takes on a stark foreboding through this lens. We've witnessed a world typical of the Coen brothers, bungling, criminality, and violence, but navigated by one of their more contradictory characters by way of Marge Gunderson. She's a moral authority without hubris, a person of satisfied ambition and proportional expectations. She is without a hint of selfishness or resentment. The world of the Coen brothers hasn't broken or compromised her in the way that it does so many of its characters, at least not yet. At the end, after capturing Gare alive and uncovering the interwoven and unwound criminal plot that spans from kidnapping to multiple homicides, she's left perplexed. She asks the mute Gare, her arrested captive, whether he knows that there's more to life than a little bit of money. But then after a beat offers, quote, and here you are, and it's a beautiful day. I just don't understand it. Now, Marge is a full-time police officer and a competent one at that. One gets the sense that in her tenure, despite her sleepy surroundings, she's probably seen some grisly business, evidenced by her calm, cool, and collected demeanor when first inspecting the double homicide in Brainerd. But when she faces a classic Cohen avatar of unmovable malice in Gare, a character reminiscent of No Country for Old Men's Anton Chigurh, or Raising Arizona's Leonard Smalls, or even going back to their debut, Blood Simple's Lauren Visser, this coupled with the disordered senselessness and selfishness of the crime spree set in motion by Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy, has eroded her resilience in the face of the Cohen's maelstrom. Through her investigation, her world and her contented understanding of it has broadened and now encompasses a terrifying and unexplainable darkness around the edges. It's a telling choice that in the final scene, Marge and Norm don't discuss the case. Of course, this isn't to say that it hasn't happened off-screen prior to this, but its exclusion in these final moments, opting instead to showcase the sweetness of their marriage, allows the final line to hang in the air with an ironic lack of closure. Norm, puffed up by Marge's compliments, wistfully drifts off, muttering two more months, of course about their soon-to-be-born child. But Marge's repetition takes on a darker, more chilling affect considering all of this. Her eyes are now open, and she's seeing the menace skirting the edges of a once-comfortably navigable world. Now the hopefulness of the two months until her child is born has become a dreadful ticking clock. Two more months until she brings a child into a world of senseless violence, a world of disorderly crime and deceit, a world that she, quote, just doesn't understand. The cinematic world of the Coen brothers. Since we'd recorded this episode, the ending that I've seen so many times and cried over with satisfied sentimentality every time has never left me as chilled as it has since considering all of this. And as it is for Marge herself, for me, it's a startling awakening. And this, in the end, despite the surface-level tenderness of its ending, makes Fargo a fitting entry into our past cold movies theme in hindsight. Now, of course, 
We've had a great time talking about Fargo and revisiting it. Uh, we're looking forward to covering some other movies that we've discussed in the past these coming weeks as Sam, again, uh, acclimates out there in California. But uh, yeah, again, in the meantime, feel free to tune in. Feel free to check out our uh, reminiscing about former episodes and discussions, sharing our memories and uh, new insights into the movies that we've already covered. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Of course, thanks to the Movie John Podcast Network for hosting us as well as a suite of other really great podcasts. And uh, until we catch you next time, thanks for tuning in and have a good whatever. This has been a Movie John podcast.